It's the Musical Theater Book Club. Let's talk about a show. Welcome to Musical Theater Book Club, where we talk about our favorite musicals, our least favorite musicals, and everything in between. I'm Berkeley. I'm Sarah. And today we're talking about Anything Goes. I've never actually seen Anything Goes. You've seen it, right? Yeah, I saw it during the 2011 revival when they went on tour. Okay, I thought you had seen it. That, yeah, no, it's definitely a show that I want to see at some point. I'd love to do it, too. I, I mean, I can't dance, so... <laughs> I was going to say, so many dance numbers. It's so much tap dancing. <laughs> I am not a dancer, and I am definitely not a tapper. Um, but maybe one day when I'm old enough, I'll be able to be um, Joel Gray's character. That Dreams. I just want to sing Friendship. <laughs> That's really it. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about it. Um, Anything Goes is 1934, music and lyrics by Cole Porter, and the book by Guy Bolton and P.G. Wadehouse. The idea originally came from Vinton Friedley. The original script involved a bomb threat, a shipwreck, and human trafficking. Yeah, when I read that. Yeah, I was like, what? I mean, we'll talk about it too when we talk about one of the first songs, but just like, I don't know, I feel like older musicals, you just expect this like older ideas. And so when I read that, I was like, wait, human trafficking in 30s? What? <laughs> right. Like, I would be so all over this original version right now. Like, I right. almost want them to just like revive Anything Goes, but turn it in back into this original version. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd i be interested to read that original script. And that's what I wanted to do. I forgot to do that. I wanted to look up to see if I could find it. Oh my um, God, that'd be so much fun. A couple weeks before opening, there was a fire on a ship that caused 138 deaths. Friedley was like, yo, maybe we should not do this. <laughs> maybe this is too dark for it. So he was like, he talked to the director and was like, we we should change this. Did you see, however, that the historian was like, mm, I don't think that's what actually happened. I think Friedley knew that the book was a mess for this show. It was sort of his way to be like, okay, good. We can change this book without them knowing. No, I didn't see that. But that's uh, super interesting, especially considering the reason they changed it wasn't just like a change of heart, like something actually happened. So that's kind of crazy that like, that just kind of like very lucky coincidence if that is. Yeah, no. And I think, I mean, come on, a bomb threat, a shipwreck and human trafficking. It sounds like it's a mess of a show. So basically what ended up happening is Friedley was like asked the director to write a new book to it and they just credited the original book writers that's why they pop up and the book writers at that point they couldn't get in contact with them because they had already gone back to London it was kind of I don't know a nice coincidence I guess one thing I do think is interesting though is that the bomb threat all, all that kind of stuff I think the mobsters subplot makes sense now like why they would be there because it is such a weird just kind of a weird random thing thrown in but yeah it definitely would make more sense with the other with the original version. So let's talk about the show. What happens? Just kind of a quick synopsis of what goes on. The USS American is sailing from New York to England as singer Reno Sweeney on board. Her friend Billy Crocker has snuck aboard to follow his love, Hope. So he sees this woman and he's like, oh my god, I'm in love. She's amazing. I don't know who she is, but I love her, you know, good old love story. I couldn't think of the word. And so the only problem is Hope is already engaged to Lord Evelyn and then public enemy number 13 Moonface Martin and his partner in crime Irma are also aboard. So 
they all go to join to help Billy win Hope's heart. I always like quick brief synopsis. Like I hate how when you go onto Wikipedia or even like licensees companies, they will give you full act breakdowns. And I'm like, stop. I just want to know what the show's about. Sometimes, yeah, I want just the shorter one beforehand. And then when I'm going through it, then the more in-depth one is nice. But like if I'm first looking into a show, yeah, I just need a quick like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's actually four different versions of this libretto that exist. You have the original one, the 1962 version, 1987, and the 2011 version. I'd be interested to see sort of in detail what all those differences are, how, how they change the libretto. And I think almost every production, they'll change the libretto, every revival, I should say, they'll change the libretto a little bit. But I, and we'll get into this later. This show, they change a lot for the most part. So for people like me or our non-super music in-depth listeners, what are you talking about? Who might not, not know that is? The libretto, meaning essentially the script of the book. Yeah, so yeah, so the libretto is sort of a combination of, I guess the best way to put it is the lyrics and the actual script combined. It's when you when you do a musical, it's what you would be handed. Your book would contain the libretto and then in the back would be all the vocal music. So that's what a libretto is. It's those type of changes. This one, I'm sure they change the actual script portion of it, but then they also change around songs and everything. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the music. I think it's really interesting. So on top of, like you said, there's four main recordings, I would say, but there's also, it's been produced tons and tons of times. Mm-hmm. There's two different movies, there's a TV version, and I thought it was really interesting. I kind of took note who some of the big actors were. And one of the things I thought was really cool was, you know, Ethel Merman started out in the original Broadway cast, and then she was actually in the film version. And then in the 1936 film version with her, Bing Crosby was in it. And then he came back and was in the movie again for the 56 movie. So I just, I don't know, I personally just love when actors have a show that they're so attached to and they're in it time and time again. I wish they did that more today. They don't do it that often, but uh, I've been researching a lot of early musicals recently and they did it a lot where their star vehicles like Ethel Merman would also star in the movie remake that came out like what? three or four years later. <laughs> like it happens all the time. Yeah, so this this production has been on Broadway like three times, right? Three and then off Broadway once. Yeah. Three, uh, yeah, three times Broadway, off-Broadway, West End, West End Revival. One of my favorite ones with this is the fact that they have numerous Australia productions. That doesn't happen often. Like, yeah. seeing, it's interesting to see the shows that make it beyond, like, Broadway and the West End and out of those locations. Because beyond that, there's not, like, a huge amount of shows that do. I mean, they will, but that usually requires adapting languages. Obviously, it doesn't for Australia. But they usually have to make huge adaption. They usually have to make a bunch of script changes to accommodate. So, and that's money. That means money. So, you know. Which, speaking of, not totally a script adaptation, but I thought this was interesting. When it went to West End, they actually changed Reno Sweeney's name. Did you see this? No, I didn't see this. Yeah. So they changed Reno Sweeney's name to Reno LaGrange because the actress who was playing her, um, oh gosh, I'm going to say her name wrong. I'm sorry. Janine Oberts has a French background. So when they moved it over to the West End, they changed Reno's last name to represent her French background. Seemed like it's such a minor thing, but... Huh, that's interesting. That's kind of funny. The one the one that threw me off, this is how you know a show is sort of really hit, made a big mark. They had an Argentina production. Oh yeah, I did yeah. see that. Yeah. I was like, because I was writing all the ones, I was like, okay, UK, Australia, like, all right. And then I was like, wait, what? It's not often you see that. Because again, you have to, at that point, you're changing language too, which is not, not an easy thing to do. It's now one of the most performed shows. 
in general, not only by professional companies, but by high schools and by colleges. They do it all the time. I really like it after listening to it. I also noticed that it was um, talking about the original production going back. It was the fourth longest musical in the 30s, which, you know, it came out shortly after the Great Depression happened. So having it have such success is awesome. Because what, the Depression ended in 33? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so this is the year after. Also, uh, the ticket prices were between 250 and 450 <laughs> I cried when I read that. I'm like, oh my God. Oh God, I wish. <laughs> give. I wish. That would be beautiful. <laughs> That would be beautiful. Harking back to last week. I want to talk about sort of the different productions because like you said, there's sort of four main recordings. But when we talk about versions, there's sort of three that we look at. We look at the original. We look at the 62 off-Broadway. And then the 87 and the 2011 revivals are sort of combined into one. Each of these sort of each production after sort of models after the one previously. Like productions now, there's actually two options when you go to license it. Licensing, like when you go to get the rights and perform the show, right? You can either get the rights to the 62 production or the 87 production. Which I think is interesting. There's a couple shows like that. Like Cinderella by Rogers and Hammerstein. There's actually three different versions you can license. I know, it's crazy. It's interesting. And I mean, obviously they all tell the same story. And we'll get into like the details with each of these each of these different productions a little bit. There's all these small minor changes that are made. And it's all sort of a way to connect to a modern audience of that time. Right? Make it make sense. And I think I think it's interesting. I think it's cool that they're able to do that. Awesome. So let's move on to music. Let's talk about the songs a bit. I really like a lot of the songs. I do too. They're super fun. They're easy to listen to. I mentioned this last week and sorry listeners, I'll probably end up mentioning it anytime we listen to an older show, but I'm not the biggest fan of older shows usually. Or it'll be like hit or miss for songs, but I liked a lot of these and a couple of them are actually like probably some of my all-time favorite like Broadway songs in general, so. I agree. A lot of these songs are how I sort of had my first experience with Anything Goes. Before I knew anything about the show or even knew it was a thing, I've heard a lot of these songs because they're so prevalent in pop culture because they're so big but i think this is a weird little aside but i think the first time i can remember back to hearing a song is it's still lovely but it wasn't the original it's still lovely it was the forbidden broadway version of it i think it was forbidden broadway rude awakening had a parody of it it's disgusting i think <laughs> and i if you haven't listened to Forbidden Broadway at all, definitely check it out if you're a musical theater buff. They're so funny. But Rude Awakening is the one I got in high school. And they parody Wicked. There's an Avenue Q parody on there. Jersey Boys. It's really funny. But that's not the show we're talking about. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's get back to Anything Goes. What are some of your biggest bops? What do you? What are your favorites? I would say I have five songs. Well, actually, I have probably six songs that are like my all-time favorites or songs that I really like. So I really enjoyed I Get a Kick Out of You, You're the Top, Friendship, to Lovely, Anything goes and the first time I listened to Blow Gabriel Blow I didn't really care for it but I started listening to it a couple more times and I was like it's pretty good so yeah. I, I'd probably throw that one in there I would say You're the Top though is probably one of my all-time favorite Broadway songs in general like I I love it like it pops on my like my Spotify playlist a lot and I just like every time just you know turn it up so I can pretend I can sing good and just belt it out every time I think it's safe to say that those those songs are all like they're Cole Porter's biggest hits basically so Cole Porter's interesting just a little bit about him he isn't one of those composers who really had a bunch of big hits a lot of his big hits are in this show a lot of his music also at this time a lot of the music written became 
standards. A lot of his didn't. Anything Goes did. I would say You're the Top and maybe I Get a Kick Out of You. Those three are really like the, the ones that became standards of the time and the ones that are that were remade by like almost every singer. But let's talk about them in context of the show. So, okay, so let's start with I Get a Kick Out of You. Typically at the beginning of the show. The 62 version, though, they put it near the end of Act 1, which I think is interesting. But I like it at the top. I think it's sort of like a, a sweet little way to start the show. I think I read somewhere, too, that depend like the placement change also changes who she's singing about. It does. So the original and like the more modern one, she is expressing her love towards Billy at the beginning of the show, which I think is a perfect way to set out sort of their dynamic. Because, I mean, she ends up helping him win Hope's heart, right? So it's a good way to get that dynamic across. The 62 version changes it. She sings it when she realizes she's in love with Evelyn, which I mean, is a choice. <laughs> Not yeah. a choice I like, but I agree. Kind of prefer it as a beginning song. Yeah, it's I... also one that when we were talking earlier about like, you know, what the original script was supposed to be. I remember when I was listening to this the first time and she's like, oh, some get like a kick from cocaine. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> It's another one of those things where, you know, they're just casually mentioning this and like throwing this in a song and I'm like, oh, okay, like good old drug use. Right. I think I think that's what makes Cole Porter's music so good. His lyrics, I feel like he is he almost has no filter for his time period. And I love it. One thing I was reading about him and they talk about how expressive he is. And I think it's interesting because these aren't necessarily romantic words, but you listen to them and you're like, yeah, that's kind of it's romantic in a quirky kind of funny way. I, I know that sounds weird i'm talking about cocaine in a romantic way but <laughs> the reason 62 or not the reason but the 62 production replaced i get a kick out of you at the beginning with you're the top at the beginning instead which again i don't know if i like that definitely interesting i listened to it and i was like okay i don't know i like i also prefer that i get a kick out of you starting it sets up reno and billy's relationship you know it sets it up more whereas i kind of like understand like okay maybe they put you're the top at the beginning because it's like another way of establishing their friendship Mm -hmm. But I like it later on to show like, because I feel like when you start with I get a kick out of you, you're like, oh, okay, Reno loves Billy. And then a little bit later, you get to hear the top and you're like, oh, no, he only he's like, definitely very, we're just friends. This is a friendship, <laughs> like not not into you. And like, you're into me, like, we're just real good friends. Whereas when you started out that way, you kind of like, it, it almost makes me wonder, like, how the 62 production went as far as do we even see that Reno had feelings for Billy? Or did they kind of try to like water that out and just establish a friendship throughout the whole thing between them? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd be interested to find that out. You're the top has an interesting change between the original and the more modern ones too so in the original it's billy convincing reno to help him win hope's love but in the more modern ones it's a pep talk from reno to billy being like you can win hope's heart which i think is cool and i kind of like i think the second one i think the more modern one works because it shows her development in regards to her relationship with billy like no i can now i am confident enough i'm not in love with you anymore i can give you this pep talk now i think that's a really good way to do it so the next song we mentioned was it's the lovely I, I don't know where to say this, but I feel like since we're talking about You're the Top and it was the only thing, the 62 version was just so different, but it was really interesting listening, especially to You're the Top. The way that they say the words almost made it sound like beat poetry. I don't know how to else to yes. Like, it didn't sound like a normal, like, singing. Like, they kept pausing and just, they were saying it weird. I, I mean, I don't want to say weird. That's not the right version, but, like, <laughs> it, it sounded more like almost spoken poetry versus, like, singing. And I kind of noticed that with the 62 version in general, all the songs sounded, like, 
more slowed down, which wasn't bad. Like it actually, when we get to the lovely next, it actually works really well for it, I think. But I just noticed that all the songs in like the 2011 version is a lot more upbeat and fast paced and like everything in 62 kind of just felt more slowed down. Yes, I will definitely when we get to the actual recordings and like which one we like the best. I have some thoughts. I'll give you some thoughts <laughs> on that. It's still lovely. So it's not in the original song. It was not written for, for Anything Goes. It was written for a show called Red Hot and Blue, which is another Cole Porter musical. And it was added into the 62 show. And it's just there to show the romance between Billy and Hope. And then it was kept for all the subsequent productions just put later on in the show. I think it's a cute little number, really. I like it. I loved the 62 version of this too. I like that the 62 adds the chorus at the end after the dance break. But at the same time, I'm like, I kind of like it just between the two of them. I think the reason I like the 62 one more for this is, you know, like I said, it's a lot slower. And for this song, it just kind of worked better. Like all the other ones, mm-hmm. like I'm like, no, I need a fast paced, anything goes. I need a fast-paced you're the top like i don't need a slower version of it but since the lovely is more of a love song the slower version works for me more like i was like going back and forth and i was like no i think the 62 one at least for this song is like my preference between the two so the next song we're going to talk about is friendship which is honestly probably my favorite song from the show I love it. You were saying earlier about, you know, hearing these songs in other contexts. This is probably the first song I heard from the show in a different context because my mom loves I Love Lucy. So when I heard the song, I was like, automatically just took me back to childhood and watching reruns of I Love Lucy with my mom. And there's, if you have not seen it, highly recommend going to YouTube. It's on there. I watched it last night and I was just laughing because it was so great. You know, Lucy and Ethel, I can't totally remember the backstory. I think they're, you know, they're fighting about something and they get the same dress for this performance. And then they just start like tearing off parts of each other's dress while seeing friendship. So it was just kind of like a nice like throwback nostalgia that I like forgot I had. And I was like, oh, I feel like it was in a deep thing too. It might have been. I feel like there was like a Donald Duck one or something. (laughs) (laughs) So the song Friendship was originally written for another one of Cole Porter's shows. Dewberry was a lady. And it was added into the 62 version and kept for all subsequent productions. But what I think is interesting is the 62 version is Reno, Billy, and Moonface. So it's a trio where all the other ones, the updated versions, it's a duet between Reno and Moonface. I kind of like the trio, but I get why they took Billy out. I get it. But the trio is a cool little addition to it. Yeah, I like it. It's I think I think I might have put it on my playlist, on my musical theater playlist. It's weird to have two different versions of the same song on, but I think because they're so different, it's okay. I'm okay with it. Also, I did just double check. Yes, there was a Disney one, which I think was also on a like Disney sing-along video I had as a kid. So. <laughs> What's the Disney context? All nostalgia for me. What's the context of the Disney one? That's a great question. I don't know. Mickey, Donald Duck, and Goofy are singing. I don't think it was like in a movie or anything. I think it was just like one of those like short, like short clips or something. I can dig that. I love that. Um, So our next song to talk about is Anything Goes, the big act one closer in the modern ones. The original, it wasn't the closer to act one. It was sung by Reno when she's like considering marrying Evelyn, right? And then they had an act one finale. Um, But then all the more modern ones put it as the act one finale, which makes so much sense. Uh, The 62 is sung about Billy and Evelyn, which by Reno, obviously. And then the more modern ones, it's only about Billy, which I think is interesting. But I'm into it. I'm into it. I like the song a lot. As you said, it just started playing in my head. And so I was like singing it to myself while you were talking. And then the last one, Blow Gabriel Blow. Honestly, this one is what keeps me 
going through act two. It's so, I mean, so the show in general makes me just want to learn tap dance, like so badly. <laughs> and it's something I've always wanted to. It's one of those things that's like maybe one day in the future forever, like never will be something I'm good at, but why, why not? But this show especially, I'm just like, every time I listen to, you know, Blow Gabriel Blow and you're the top and you hear those dance break numbers, but they're not just regular dance break numbers, those tap dance break numbers. And I'm just like, oh, they're <laughs> so good. They are. They're so good. This one, um, the context of this song didn't change much. So it's always around Billy's arrest. The earlier versions do it after Billy has been arrested, a sort of a way for Reno to cheer them up. The more modern ones do it before he's arrested, and it's part of Reno's sermon, because she's also an evangelicalist. The only other song I want to talk about that's not in there is only in the 62 production, and it's called Heaven Hop. It's sung by Bonnie, and it's just a fun song. It's just like one of those songs that's just there. It's taken out because you don't need it. It was originally written for Cole Porter's musical Paris, and it replaced Where Are the Men from the original production. But neither song made it to any of the modern productions. So I think we can just say those both those songs were pointless to the show. I was about to say, I was like, wait, I definitely would have listened to a song called Where Are the Men? So I was like, <laughs> how did I mend- miss that? I think, I think another thing that we haven't really talked about yet that's important to note about the music is the reason all these changes can happen is because back then it wasn't so important for the music to help tell the story. Let me rephrase that. It's helping tell the story, but it's not so specific like we see in today's shows. Back then, a lot of audience members were, they just wanted a nice tune. That's why. And that's why a lot of them became standards. Now it's important that the songs also tell the stories because the attention span of the audience is a lot shorter than it was back then. I have other things to do now. I can't yeah. do, you know, a exactly. show that's not going to tell me exactly what's happening at every second. Exactly. People don't want to go see a musical if the songs don't necessarily matter to the show. I don't know. I mean... Cat's pretty popular. No, those are important. We need to be introduced to every cat on stage. All the jellical cats. All of them. I need to know about all the jellical cats. I need to know about their lives their personalities, and I need to see one be sacrificed. Anyways, so let's get into the recordings. There's 15 recordings of this show. Jesus Christ. I, 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 there's five on Spotify alone. There, okay, I thought there were five. There's oh, like God, six. Know. There's six or seven. So we have the 62, Hal Linden, the 87 with Patti LuPone, in 80... 89 London, 2003 London. Oh, so there's also an 88 London studio cast recording. Oh, that okay, I, that must have been the one I missed. No, uh, yeah, I found it last night. And then there's also, we got the 2003 London, the 2011 Broadway with Sutton Foster. And then there's like a compilation one with a bunch of various artists. And I'm like, cool, love it. Why? Is it like Broadway artists or like modern artists? It was an older one. And I don't, I didn't look too much into it. Uh, I started listening to it a little bit and then I was like, uh, not much special about it. I think it's safe to say that my favorite is a Sutton Foster one. I also just love Sutton Foster so much. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime we do any shows with her, I will just gush about how much I just love her. And she seems like she is probably a really cool person, which makes it more enjoyable. So yeah, I also love the Sutton Foster version. I was I was going to do this thing where I listened to all the versions and then I made like my ideal Anything Goes recording. But it was like each song I was like, Sutton Foster, Sutton Foster. I like that version the best. Yeah. 
I was the same way. Like, I just kind of kept going back and forth between, like, my top five songs. And was like, okay, let me listen to every version of You're the Top. Let me listen to every version. And there wasn't, like, I'd listen to the Sun Foster one. I was like, this is awesome. And then I would listen to the 62 version and be like, okay, this is a little bit slower. And then the 87, 89, 2003 ones all just kind of sounded the same to me. I'd probably listen to about a minute of it and then be like, next song. Mm -hmm. Like, the only one that really stood out besides the 2011 was the 62 ones. I think that's because the 62 is so different. And the more modern ones, like, every after that are sort of based off the same thing the only thing that really changes are orchestrations the overture changes in each of them which i really like i'm stuck between the 2011 and the 2003 overtures so the 2003 is i would say more like a this is going to sound stupid because it's time period but like it sounds like an early 2000s overture whereas the 2011 almost has a more hollywood sound to it i noticed this last night and i was like hmm Interesting. So I'm stuck between those. The 89 is really interesting. I don't know if you listen to that one, but it starts off really grainy as if you've gone back in time and then it go goes into a full orchestration. And I was like, oh, I really like this. It's hard to listen to for the first minute or so. But then once it gets out of the grain, it's really nice. The other thing I noticed with each of the recordings is you could really get a sense of the characters between each of the Renos, which I really liked. Obviously, we aren't able to see any of these productions now. They're all closed. They're all done. The 89 production is not running still. Sorry to break it to you. You can get a real sense of each of these women's renos very nicely in these recordings, I think. Like, you can tell Sutton Foster is more of a super comedic reno. And I mean, she's she's a comedic actress, so it makes sense. Whereas, like, Patty is Patty Lupone as Reno Sweeney. <laughs> like, she is. You listen to it and you're like, ah, yeah, that's Patty. One that I thought was interesting was the 89 version felt very archetypal 1930s. Like, the only thing I try to find a good example of this and the closest thing I could think of is almost film noir lady. But then I thought of this last night. She reminds me a lot of Anna Gasteyer in Reefer Madness. Mm. Yes, that's like the closest thing I found. And I'm here for it. I dig it. So let's talk awards. In general, they took the best revival, usually one acting category and always the choreography. One of the things I thought was really interesting when I was looking at the awards is that this show was started like, you know, 15 years before the Tonys even existed. Mm -hmm. So like the original, yeah, it had no chances of getting anything until the 87 revival. I was, oh no, because the 62 was off Broadway. That's why. Never mind. Forget that I said that. I think you did. I think I did. Yeah. No productions of this show were nominated for any of the big awards until 87. So they always took those, those categories, but they never really took any design categories. And I mean, I feel like the design of the show I've, from pictures I've seen is never very competitive. It's pretty simplistic from like what a little bit I remember and what I was seeing when I was watching some of the performances on YouTube. It is. I mean, it's just, it's a ship. It's not yeah. anything fancy, which I mean, I think is fine because, you know, they have, we keep seeing, you know, we saw that choreography got nominated. I think every time and you you can hear it like you can hear the dance numbers and you can imagine the choreography without even having to watch it you know I think you can pick and choose what you want to focus on and I don't think you have to necessarily have this amazing set all the time I completely agree with that there's a recording of the Tonys from when Patty was Reno Sweeney and then you have the recording from the 2011 and the set's like the same yep yep, yep. I, I have so this is a good time since you mentioned that there is recordings <laughs> of both of them Ooh. please don't send me hate mail. So it's nothing about Patty being bad. I mean, she's amazing, obviously. She's phenomenal. But you watch, so I watched both of them. I watched the 89 version at the, or 87, whatever, whatever year it was, the Patty one at the yes. Tonys. And I watched Sutton at the Tonys. And this is, you know, obviously it's hard to compare the two just as far as we didn't see the show. I'm just basing this literally off of one song at the Tonys performance. But holy crap, Sutton Foster is a goddamn mastermind. <laughs> she is such a phenomenal dancer which i mean is a given i mean 
mean, she has the longest legs in the history of the universe. But you watch it, and you they're both singing the same song. They both sing Anything Goes. And you're watching it, and there's the dance. Both of them have the dance breaks. And Patty's in the back, like, hanging out. I don't want to say hanging out with the guys, because that sounds bad. But, like, you know, they have the main dancers doing their thing, and she's doing her part of just, like, hanging out while the dancers are doing their dance break. And then she does her end part of the singing. And then you watch the Sun Foster one. And she is doing the dances. She's doing the moves. She's, oh, my God. And, she, you know, they have maybe a 10-second break where you can see her catching her breath. And then she belts out that anything goes at the end. And you're just like, does this woman not need oxygen? What? <laughs> and so I don't want to say she's better because they're, they are so different actresses. And like you said, like, you know, you can tell Sutton's more of the comedic actress and Patty's more of the like, this is me. <laughs> but just watching it, I was just like, I know there was some criticism of Sutton Foster being in it, but mm-hmm. she is phenomenal. She is just like, when I watched it, I was like, I can't imagine doing this amazing dance number and then being able to not just sing, but belt out anything goes at the very end there flawlessly. I think it's safe to say that Sutton Foster is not a lead actress that likes to park and bark. She will dance with everybody else. Yeah, I want to be Sutton Foster when I grow up. So Honestly, <laughs> honestly. And I think it's funny that you mentioned that because there is a award ceremony for dance and choreography. It's called the Cheetah Rivera Awards for dance and choreography. Sutton Foster that year for Anything Goes won the award for Best Answer on Broadway. And I was like, I saw that and I was like, oh, okay, Sutton, get it. I mean, she should win every year, even when she's not on Broadway. Uh, true. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> even when she's in Shrek, where she doesn't really dance, she should have won Best okay, Answer on Broadway. Shrek. She's in so many things I like forget she was in. I know. So the only other award I want to bring up, because I think it's really funny, is that they were also nominated for a Grammy, the 2011 production. I did for <laughs> For Best Show Album. Did you see who they lost to, though? No, I should have. Book of Mormon. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I think it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, kept it in the family. Yeah, no, at least they did. So let's start, let's move over to the pop culture references, because there's a lot. So not a pop culture reference, but just kind of something, I don't know when to throw this in, but it kind of gets spot. So also with the 2011 revival, there was a part of time where Satin left, she came back, and then she left for the rest of it. Yes. And, you know, our girl Stephanie J. Block took over. Yeah. And I'm looking at the year, <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder if this is it. And I, you know, do my little internet sleuthing, and she left to go shoot the pilot for Bunheads, and she left for Bunheads, which is a really fun show and I really recommend if you like Sutton Foster. It's one season. It's great. You get to see her doing singing and dancing and if you're a Gilmore Girls fan or if you like Amy Sherman Palladino shows, you'll love it. So Really quick though, um, I am so excited to get to a show with Stephanie J. Block. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I, I love her. I did watch her rendition of Anything Goes. Ugh, I love her. That's I all. I think of seeing if there was one. I'll have to look. I don't know if they have anything else from the show for her, but they at least have Anything Goes, and I'm into it. So pop culture... I mean, this show has a ton. We're not going to talk about all of them because some are bigger than others. Some are, you know, more important than others. Just some of my favorites are ones that I thought were great. There's a Jonathan Groff cover, which I sent to you last night because yes. I was like, have you seen this? It's phenomenal. I think it was for like a benefit or something, right? Yeah, I think it was for, was it for Easter Bonnet or something? It was for something. Let me see if and I can. It was just, I mean, if we were just, we're just going to go on, you know, talking about all the great people on Broadway. That's another one who is great. And it made me just be like, I wish we could fully one day get to a point where we can have shows with, what am I trying to say, gender fluidity. Like, Like, I I don't want every show to always do it because it can definitely get overplayed. But I think with certain shows, it could work. And I honestly feel like you could easily do this with anything goes. Like, I know, I love that idea. Like, with Pippin, the revival that they did, where the leading player is originally played by uh, a guy. And then in the revival they did, Patina played the leading player. And they were both nominated. And I think they both won the Tony for that. And it's the only award in history to ever be won by people of 
two different genders. That's so cool. Like, I think it would be a fun, it'd be fun. And yeah, I just recommend if you haven't watched the Jonathan Groff one, I didn't know existed till last night, but it was very fun. It was for MCC Miss Cascala. Also, apparently Jonathan Groff also loves Sutton Foster. So it's like, who doesn't? And then there's just some other ones. Another one that I thought was really fun that I found last night when I was looking up stuff. So, you know, I mentioned Ethel Merman, you know, she was the original on Broadway. She was in the movie. And then I mentioned the I Love Lucy clip of Friendship. And there's actually a clip of I Love Lucy where Ethel Merman is on it. And she's like teaching. I don't know what the context exactly is because I've never watched that episode before. It was also in color, which is interesting. I don't know if it was like a re-digitalized one. I know sometimes they do that where they'll put them in color. But it was interesting because she was teaching someone and she was going to teach them how to sing like Ethel Merman. And then the actual, and then show Ethel comes in and she's like trying to tell Lucy and Lucy's like, go away. I'm trying to teach this lady how to sing. And then Ethel Merman like goes and turns off the um, recording and starts just singing. (laughs) And you know, Lucy like realizes. So I just thought that was like a fun, like sort of circle of anything goes references and actors. I'll just keep going. I got more. Yeah. Do you want to say any more? Three more that were good. Okay. This one was really interesting, which I had to look up because I was like, what? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the intro of it has them singing Anything Goes in Mandarin, which was really interesting. I was like, what? And then I like looked it up on YouTube. I'm like, that's such a weird, okay. <laughs> huh. Do you know what year Indiana Jones and the Temple Dune happened? 1984. When does it take place? 35. It's time period. It's yeah. very possible. I mean, I don't know how fast songs traveled then, but that's possible. That's cool. Just kind of an interesting, like all the other ones like made I feel like made sense as far as why they had references to it. But I just thought that one was kind of different and fun. And then the last one I just had was in a Gilmore Girls episode. They have one where they slightly changed the lyrics to it, which is just kind of another one of those weird circles because Gilmore Girls, they make a reference to Anything Goes. And then after Gilmore Girls, she does Amy Sherman Palladino makes Sunheads, which Sutton Foster is on. And then Sutton Foster leaves Anything Goes to Bambines. <laughs> and, then Gil- and then Sutton Foster is actually in the Gilmore Girls revival. So it's just, again, this like interweb of just connections. (laughs) I think one of my favorite things is to get lost and stuff like that. Just sometimes you have to, like when you're doing research, especially just to sort of break up the monotony is you need to find that. Like you'll click one link and you'll just keep going down the rabbit hole. I love stuff like that so much. So I think it's time for our rating. I think the rating I chose is how many kicks do you get from this show? I had some other ones, but that's my favorite one. Honestly, I give it, I'd probably go seven and a half again. Like I did last week with Heather's. Yeah, I I really like the show. The only issue... Obviously, I haven't seen it, so I can't I can't speak to the actual production of the show. But my only issue that I have with it so far is the second act just doesn't keep me interested enough. However, I love a lot about it. I love a lot of the standards that we hear. I love the fact that it can be changed around and it can be updated. And I, I just think that's cool. Plus, it's a huge show and huge shows are always fun. My rating was I went out of out nope. of public enemies. <laughs> so I guess. <laughs> I give it six public enemies. Yes. Okay. Like I said, I saw the show. I don't really remember. It was also, you know, like 10 years ago now and I was still pretty young. By pretty young, I mean like 19. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's good. The songs that I like are amazing and I think they're great songs. It was, it was a show I would see again if it, you know, got revived again. I would probably go see it. I think it's fun. Yeah, I think it's a fun show and that's, I was reading something about it before we wrap it up that a lot of Cole Porter's shows were just kind of run of the mill. A lot of people have have the idea that theater needs to be groundbreaking and like every show needs to be groundbreaking but in this article or this book i was reading they said that not every show can be groundbreaking because then it goes over the heads of the modern audience and that's why i think anything goes did really well 
because it wasn't one of those groundbreaking shows. It was a show that really appealed to an audience of its time. And we see it time after time being updated for that modern audience. And I think that's why it does well and why it keeps being revived and it keeps being done by people. It, it's sort of an easy show to go to and watch. I really like it. I wrote out a teaser for our next episode. I kept it short and sweet because I feel like if we said too much, it would give it away. But all I wrote is it's not a musical, but an event. That's it. Pretty simple. So Sarah, where can they send their guesses? You can find us on Twitter at MTBC podcast, musical theater book club podcast, or you can email us at MTBC podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Have a great week and don't get caught up in a mobster love triangle. Thank you.